Welcome to summer in Texas. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I've, I can check it off my list and I'm ready for cool weather to come here. But summer means a couple of things. Number one, no school. Yes. Vacation and homework projects. Because, you know, it's the change in the schedule. And so you're able to do some of your work projects. Well, one infamous summer, we painted the chimney of our house. And this ladder does not do justice in what I had to go rent at Lowe's. So um, we have a one-story house, but the way our chimney sits on it's really kind of wonky. And so I had to get the largest ladder Lowe's had. So we go there, we strap it on top of my SUV, and then I'm driving through the neighborhood like a fire truck, getting to my house because, you know, you only have four hours the way the renting works at Lowe's, and I'm not going to pay more. And I get this ladder up on my house, and I get up to the top, and I can only reach half my chimney. I had brushes, I had poles, I had rollers, I had everything, and I could not reach the other part of my chimney. And so I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what my builder did. Did he hire circus acrobats? Because I have absolutely no idea how they painted my chimney the first time. And I was so frustrated because all my efforts, I had all the tools, I'm reaching, I'm doing everything I can, and despite all of my best efforts, I could not accomplish the task. Now, moral of the lesson is I hired a painter last summer to do it, and two guys painted my entire house in the same time it took me to paint half my chimney. It's frustrating when all of your efforts, no matter how earnest you are, how, how, what good intentions you have, no, how, no matter how hard you try, they just don't accomplish what you want to accomplish. Now, please hear me. Seeing the fruit of our labor is a good thing. Um, you mow your grass. I pruned my tree yesterday. And you sit back and you're like, ah, oh, this feels like a great accomplishment. But the problem is, is when we take our own self-efforts, and apply it to our spiritual walk on a daily basis. Grace. Did you catch the theme this morning? <laughs> You've sang about it all morning. Grace, it's about grace, and it's not based on our own efforts. It's actually the opposite of our own efforts. And my own efforts are not enough, but grace. Grace is enough. Now, here's your big idea for the morning. If you go to sleep for the next 30 minutes, this is the only thing you have to remember. Here's your big idea. The big idea is this. The grace of God always takes the first step. The grace of God always takes the first step despite our own efforts, not because of our own efforts. The grace of God always takes the first step despite our own efforts, not because of our first efforts. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 28 this morning, Genesis chapter 28. But before we get there, I need to set up the story of what's going on in Genesis. Genesis is the story of beginnings. Genesis 1 through 11 talks about the beginnings of where we came from and who God is and all these types of things. And then starting in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, we are introduced to four of the patriarchs, and the story moves from there. So in Genesis chapter 12, we have Abraham, and then we're introduced to his son Isaac, and then we're introduced to his son Jacob, and then we're introduced to one of his sons, Joseph. 
So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Four generations, that's what's driving the story. And back in Genesis chapter 12, we're going to be introduced a little bit later on. We're going to talk about the Abrahamic covenant. We're in a city called Haran. That's going to be important later on. Abraham first receives the call of the Lord and receives the promise of land. Now, this narrative of the promise of land, it is the driving narrative throughout all of Genesis. It is the driving narrative of the promised land for all the Old Testament. It's the driving narrative of Middle East politics today. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Well, so we have Abraham, we have Isaac, and Isaac has twin boys named Jacob and Esau. Esau is the oldest of the twins, and he's a man's man. He's the outdoorsman, and he is loved by his dad, Isaac. Jacob is more of the homebody, and he is loved by his mother, Rebecca. The playing of favorites and the one-upsmanship in this family is just significant all throughout the narrative. So Jacob and Esau, let me tell you a little bit about Jacob's name. Jacob comes from the root word for heel, one who grasped the heel. Um, it, or it could be talked about in a nomenclature of someone who cheats or someone who schemes. Hi, let me introduce you to my boy, Cheater. That's Jacob's name. So that's how he started out life. Hi, my name is Cheater. Well, he lives up to that name. Jacob first cheats his brother out of the birthright. And then Jacob deceives his own father and cheats his brother out of the blessing. Now you can imagine, here's Esau and he's lost the birthright. And he's lost the blessing to cheater boy here. And he's not happy about it. And he literally wants to kill Jacob. Well, mom and dad get sense of this, and they're like, we've got to get this boy out of town, and we've got to get this boy out of town quickly. So we're going to send him to Haran, remember back over here, chapter 12, to Rebekah's brother. So this would be Jacob's uncle, Laban, to go find, a, not a Canaanite wife, but to go find a wife amongst uh, their people. Now, one last thing. Jacob and Esau are 40 years old. This is not two middle school boys punching each other in the arm. This has been building and building and building for 40 years, this one-upsmanship and this playing of favorites. And what we're going to see is, as we dump into our passage, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 10, and you're going to see a place, a dream, and a promise. A place, a dream, and a promise. Genesis 28.10 says, Jacob left Beersheba, which was his home, and went to Haran. Now, again, very matter of fact, because he's getting out of Dodge, because Esau wants to kill him. But again, back to this Haran. There's family ties that are there. 125 years prior to this, 
his grandfather Abraham had made the exact same journey that Jacob is getting ready to make, just in reverse order. Now, it's 500 miles. Uh, Haran sits on the Syrian-Turkey border, modern-day Syrian-Turkey border. Um, it's 500 rough miles. This is through the wilderness. This is going to take him about a month. And remember, I told you, Esau is the manly man. He's the outdoorsman. He's the camper. Jacob is not our outdoorsman. Jacob is not the camper. But besides it being just a physically hard journey, there's also a mental aspect to this journey as well. Jacob is alone. Jacob is running for his life. And in the back of Jacob's mind, he's always thinking, wow, I wonder if this was worth it. I cheated my brother out of the birthright. I cheated my brother out of the blessing. Was it worth it? to now leave the promised land, what I cheated out of, I'm now having to leave. Verse 11, Genesis 28, says, He, Jacob, came to a certain place. Remember I said a place, a dream, and a promise. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. This is maybe a day or two in the journey. Now, we know from later on in the passage that there's a city just right here called Lutz. And you're thinking to yourself, well, why didn't he go into the city? Well, because Esau's ticked. Maybe he thinks Esau has a warrant out for his arrest. Maybe there's a bounty on his head. Maybe word has already gotten out that I cheated my brother and I lied to my father. And in this honor-shame culture, he's like, the last place I need to be is around anybody. But he comes to a certain place and stays there for the night and taking one of the stones of the place, he doesn't even get to sleep in a nice green pasture. If you're going to sleep outside, you're going to pick a nice spot, maybe a nice tree, He's out in a rock field running for his life. A dream. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached the heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, i got to do a little bit of clarification. I know I have a ladder up here. I know that passage says ladder. That's probably not the best translation. Let me tell you why. It says angels, plural. Have you ever had more than one person on a ladder before? How's that trying getting up and down when you got more than one person on a ladder? It doesn't really work. Um, probably, honestly, the better translation would be either like a mountain slope or a staircase, something that's very broad, that's very wide. And angels are ascending and descending. Anytime angels show up in the Bible, take notice. Because one or two things is happening. It's an incredibly important message or somebody is in dire circumstances. Sometimes it's both. And that's what we have here. So let me give you an example of one of those dire circumstances. A couple of, cha a couple of chapters prior to our, where we are now in Genesis chapter 28, we read about Hagar and her son Ishmael. And they are left to die in the exact same wilderness where Jacob finds himself, and an angel comes and rescues them. Angels show up, and they do four things. Angels worship the Lord. Angels protect those things that are of the Lord. Angels communicate important messages to his creation. 
and angels protect his people. The idea of the angels descending and ascending back up, this probably is very much an idea of the angels are descending to go and do the work of the Lord amongst the earth. And then they're ascending to go back and to do their reports. This closeness of heaven to earth and the interest of heaven and the earth is illustrated here probably as clearly as anywhere else in the Old Testament. So a place, a dream, and now we're going to get to a promise. And the promise actually has four parts. It says, and behold, the Lord stood above it, above the ladder of the stairway, the ramp, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed." So let's go back again to Abraham. Remember I said Abraham, chapter 12, there's this promise of the land. It's spoken again to Abraham in chapter 13. It's spoken again to Abraham in chapter 15. It's spoken again to Abraham in chapter 17. And then it's spoken to Isaac. Genesis 28, 13 and 4, I'm sorry, Genesis 13, 14 and 15. Let me read you what God said to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, and look what's on the screen and see how it compares. So to Abraham, he said, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all of the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. So the first aspect of the promise is land. Now, for each one of these four aspects of the promise, it's going to meet a direct need in Jacob's own life. Land. Jacob's homeless. Jacob has left the land. Jacob has left all of his possessions, and he is now homeless without possessions. We know a little bit later on when he gets to his uncle Laban's house, he has jack squat to give to his uncle. And he says, I can work for you. And Laban says, great, work for me for seven years then work for me for another seven years. For 20 years, he's basically in a labor camp for his uncle because he doesn't have anything. But listen to the grace that's being extended to this. The birthright and the blessing which Jacob had stolen, they're still his, even though he had abandoned the very land that he had tricked Esau out of. See, the grace of God always takes the first step despite our own efforts, not because of our own efforts. It says down here towards the end that your offspring shall be, uh, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God says, I'm not even going to just bless you, Jacob. I'm going to make you and your family a blessing to other people. Well, what's the direct thing that's addressing there? Well, Jacob has been disgraced and shamed. And this is an honor-shame culture. He lied to his dad. He cheated his brother. And trust me, Esau made sure that everyone in the camp knew that Jacob the cheater lived up to his name. And he made sure that everybody in the community knew what was going on. And he leaves in complete dishonor and complete shame. And to Jacob's shame... God speaks a word of grace and a future blessing. Again, 
Grace takes the first step. The Lord takes the initiative in this. See, Jacob thought his scheming is what would get him the land, what his scheming would, would get him the blessing, but it had already been settled. Despite his questionable character, despite his failures, despite being a fugitive with a possible bounty on his head, the promise still applied. And oh, God is such a God of amazing grace. Okay, application, rabbit trail, absolutely 100% free of charge. No matter how badly you have screwed up in the past, how you've acted, what shame you feel in the past, God can always meet you exactly where you are and not only bless you, but also use you as a blessing for other people. That's the story of Jacob. And we'll talk about this then. Jacob's story is your story. Are you ashamed of your past? Are you devastated by something you said in the past or something you did in the past? God is able to start over with you right where you are. Jacob is a scheming mess out of a dysfunctional family. That just describes exactly who he is. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing causes God to ever give up on his own. The grace of God always takes the first step. Despite our own efforts, not because of our own efforts. And, and God is so willing to extend grace to you much more than you're willing to accept it. So, there's a promise of land. There's a promise of being a blessing to others. Let's continue on. In verse 15, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. The promise of God's presence. Jacob's alone. For 40 years, he had been the center of attention. He was the son of a patriarch. When Jacob spoke, the people in the camp listened to him, and now there's no one around him. Here's the really cool fact. Behold, I am with you. That's the first time in scripture that's ever said to a person. Now, it's said later to Moses. It's said later to Joshua. It's said later to Gideon. In Isaiah, this idea of Emmanuel, God with us, and we know who Emmanuel is, that is Christ. Let me give you some words. What Jesus says to you as believers, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the earth in Matthew 28, 20. And then in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Here's this scheming mess from a dysfunctional family with a bounty on his head. And God says, I am going to be with you. And he says, I'm going to be with you and keep you wherever you go. Now, I would love to be able to tell you that, man, this epiphany experience happens and Jacob just cleans up his act and gets everything great. No, he's a mess for the rest of his life. He's a mess for the rest of his life. His kids are screwed up. It, it's a total mess. Yet the grace is always there. The grace is always there no matter how bad the dark times get in Jacob's life. And the final aspect of the promise is that he says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back here. See, because Jacob feared what the future held for him. Now, I know, I know I'm going to speak hypothetically, but none of you have ever done anything bad. But let's just say hypothetically, you've done something bad. Don't you always look around your shoulders going, gosh, is somebody going to figure this out? That's Jacob for the next 20 years. 
Behind every tree, he's thinking, oh, Esau's there. Behind every rock, oh gosh, Esau's there. Esau's going to find me and Esau's going to kill me. And he says, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. Jacob's response to this place, to this dream, and to this promise is awe and a memorial and a vow. In verses 16 and 17, it says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep. So Jacob's going to wake up twice. So this is middle of the night. So ladder, God, angels, I'm pretty much going to wake up if angels, God, and a ladder shows up in my dream. So this is middle of the night. He wakes up and he says, surely the Lord's in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. This is the first recorded encounter that Jacob has with a holy God. And again, he's a mess. He's lied to his dad. He's cheated his brother. He's left the promised land. He's screwed up everything back here from Genesis 12 as the grandson. And he's like, I, am, I should be just wiped off the face of the earth because I've now come face to face with the Lord. See, there's an acute consciousness of Jacob's sin and his unworthiness to, to stand before the divine presence. And for the first time in Jacob's life, he came face to face with somebody that he couldn't outsmart or outcon. Because for 40 years, he was really good at conning people. And he was really good at lying to people. And he was really good at getting his way. And for the first time in his life, he hits something that's greater than he is. And he says, man, this place is awesome. It's awesome because I didn't die. I should have died when I met the holy God. But this is awesome because of the grace that is being extended to me. House of God. That word is Beth Elohim. Later it's going to be shortened to Beth El. He says, this is an awesome place because God showed up there. So early in the morning. So he must have gone back to sleep. I don't know how. If I see angels and ladders, I'm not going back to sleep. But supposedly he's gone back to sleep and now morning comes. And so early in the morning, Jacob took a stone that he put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel, Beth Elohim, shortened Bethel. But the name of the city was Lutz at the first. Um, this idea of a pillar, you know, we do this today. When you drive into the city of Frisco, there's a marker saying you're entering the city of Frisco. Uh, when you go to a graveyard, there are headstones, there are markers of loved ones and where they are laid to rest. If you go to a historical site, a battlefield or a courthouse, there's going to be a memorial or a marker that's there. Jacob is going, this is amazing and awesome. I came face to face with the Lord. Grace was given to me when I did not deserve it. I have got to make a memorial to this. And so he sets, sets up this pillar and he anoints it with oil. Anointing with oil means that it's being consecrated, that it's being set aside as something that is holy, that is something that is different. And you know, even in his sinfulness, even in his weakness, he still recognizes that this is the incredible presence of the divine and the grace that was extended to him, and he had the spiritual sensitivity to worship. So, we're here at verse 19. 
and you think to yourself, man, Jacob is ending on a high note. This is amazing. This wretched sinner has come face to face with God and he has had grace extended to him and he's worshiped him. Oh, but he's got something to say. And I'm like, Jacob, shut up. Stop talking. Jacob made a vow. God didn't ask him to make a vow. God says, I've given you all these things. Just accept it. But Jacob's the schemer. Jacob's the cheater. And Jacob is all about his efforts. And he says, no, I got to earn this. And so Jacob made a vow. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way so that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob, did you not hear anything that God just told you? I'm going to give you the land. You're going to be a blessing for other people. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bring you back here. And Jacob says, yeah, but four things. Jacob focused on himself rather than the Lord. The Lord says, I'm with you. I'm going to give you. I, 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 I. Jacob says, me, 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 my, my, my. Now, before you throw Jacob off of the ladder, you know we do the same thing. How many times is my prayer life so shallow, so self-focused, so low-hanging? Now, please hear me. God wants to hear our needs. God cares about our needs. But how many times is my prayer life so self-centered and self-focused? So I'm going to give you four applications. Here's application number one. Your prayers need to be upward and outward. Your prayers need to be upward and to be outward. You serve the God of the universe, the creator of everything you see. You serve a God who cares deeply for you. When grace steps down first, you have the freedom to focus your prayers back to God and to focus your prayers on other people. But see, in our flesh, we want to look out for ourselves. Now, again, I'm not asking you to stop praying for your needs, but let me give you a first step. So if we're going up this ladder in our own efforts, here's your first step coming down off the ladder. When you pray, and you should be praying, but when you pray and you bring your needs to the Father, I want you to do two things. One, praise the Father for the ability to meet that need. And second, how about this? Pray for someone else who has the exact same need you have. Upward and outward. Instead of having your prayers always focused on you, taking that small step of every time you bring a request to the Lord, praise Him for his ability to meet that need and also to take the time to say, how can I be a blessing of other people? And I'm going to pray for someone else who has the exact same need I have. If you do that one fundamental thing, it will radically change your prayer life. So Jacob focused on himself rather than the Lord. Second, Jacob doubted the Lord. There's doubt that's there. 
God lays out all of these things, but Jacob is worried about his immediate needs, thinking, I don't know if God's going to be able to take care of my immediate needs. And so the purpose of this vow is to nail God down. That's the purpose of the vow is, God, I want you to show up to make sure you come through with what you say. See, some, the mere words of God weren't enough for Jacob. Now, again, before you throw Jacob off the ladder, we do the same thing. We just sang about grace, about grace, about grace, about grace, about grace, about grace. Do you really believe it? When you open up Scripture and it has these promises of God says He will do this in your life, do you actually believe it? Greatest definition of faith I know. Faith is living as though the Bible is true. God, can I, do I really think you're able to do the promises that you say you can do? God, do, do, do I really think you're going to take care of me? God, do I really think you are going to love me? So, coming off the ladder of effort, a first step down. Trust what God says. What you hold in your hand, on your iPhone, or what you're seeing on the screens, however you're getting the Scripture, every single time when you open it up, every single time when you read it, to say, this is true, and I'm going to believe it. You hold in your hands the infallible and errant Word of God, and it can be trusted. Third thing, Jacob tried to bargain with God. He's a schemer. He's a bargainer. Again, his name means cheater. And it's this idea that Jacob, Jacob tells God that God, if he does these things, well, then I'll respond accordingly. The covenant is set, yet Jacob is still bargaining for the covenant. Now, again, before you throw Jacob off the ladder, we do the exact same thing in our lives. See, our efforts in our flesh say that we can't trust God because we're going to let God take the first step. And once God takes the first step, well, then I'll be able to correspond accordingly. But it's on to God first. But you know the message of the gospel is this, is that the first step has already been taken. Grace takes the first step. Not a single person that has ever lived has ever sought out God of their own initiative. It is God who is woos and brings a person to Him. God is always the initiator. And we see this ultimately in Christ. Romans tells us very clearly in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, to step off the ladder for application... As amazing as the pulpit is here and as amazing as the Bible studies that are here, there's always a person that has, come, has never come to a point of trusting in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. Christ has taken the first step to provide salvation for you. And just as Jacob had made a marker saying, this is awesome that he experienced grace, there's no better time than today to make today be that same marker in your own life. And finally, as we look at this vow, Jacob's got jack squat to offer God back. 
He's saying, well, if you do these things, I'm going to give you all these things. It doesn't matter what Jacob offers, it's going to be inadequate. It doesn't matter how high I got up on the ladder. It doesn't matter how long the pole was. It doesn't matter how long the brush was. There was absolutely no way I could reach the back of my chimney to paint it. Jacob brings absolutely nothing to the game. The application for us is this, as the one step coming off. Our obedience comes out of grace. Our obedience does not cause us to receive grace. Now, for us who have been believers for a while, we say, yes, salvation by grace, salvation by grace, but it's all about me working in the sanctification process. No, it's all about grace. Absolutely everything about it is about grace. And so your first step is allow yourself to rest in the grace. That's not laziness. Because God's going to ask you to do something. But it's a response out of obedience and love. It's not a response trying to get God to do something for you. Do you see the change in that? Jacob's story is your story. See, I read the Bible and I think about Abraham and I go, oh gosh, I could never be like Abraham and I can never be like Isaac and I can't be like Moses and I can't be like David and I can't be like Peter. I can't be like Paul, but all of us can absolutely be like Jacob. (laughs) Jacob is an amazing picture of grace. Jacob's story takes up half of the book of Genesis and we act like Jacob every single day. But our applications, again, there are four. Pray upward and pray outward. Maybe that's one thing you take away from this is that I'm going to turn away my selfish prayers to pray upward and to pray outward towards others. Or two, taking God at his word. That I read this scripture and that it actually is true. When we sing these songs, it actually is true. And faith is living as though the Bible is true. And I, so I'm going to, every time I open up scripture, I'm going to say, I believe this. Now, help me live out what I believe about this. Application three, coming to a point of trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. Get off the ladder because Christ has already come down to you. Or application number four, to obey out of grace instead of thinking that your obedience will result in grace. Jacob is an amazing picture of grace. Embrace that in your own life. As our ushers come down, let me lead us in prayer for our offertory this morning. Gracious Father, we have sung about your grace, and we have, in this, in this, um, message, we have seen a visual representation of your grace. Father, we have nothing to bring to you. But Father, in thanks and in gratitude, we give back to you. Not to earn your grace, but as a means of saying thank you. And so Father, during this time of offering May we graciously give back to you what you have so graciously given to us in the first place. And we do pray these things in the name of your Son who makes grace possible and the mighty power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.